broadcast a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, today on the program, I have the absolute privilege to talk to David Way, who's the curator for the Battleship Iowa, which is currently stationed in San Pedro, California, just south of Los Angeles. And I love this because most people don't get to explore a piece of living history in their lifetime. And this is exactly that. Uh, I have absolutely no idea what it would be like to live at sea. It seems very claustrophobic to me, personally. Um, even if the ship is gigantic, which it is, you still have nowhere to go. I mean, you know, if you, if you want to get off the ship, your only bet is to swim for shore, maybe steal a lifeboat or something. Uh, you're kind of stuck. But there's a, tons of people who love this life. Um, you know, our, our, the military, the Navy, uh, this, is, this is their life, and we're going to learn about it. Not only how it exists now, but specifically in World War II when they were on this, and, and this, this particular ship got recommissioned several times. Got a lot, it existed at a lot of interesting points in our history. Um, an incredible background to this ship. I'm very excited. Uh, let's get into this. David Way, thank you so much for being on the program today. Our pleasure. We just really enjoy always uh, sharing Iowa and uh, battleship history with the public, and welcome aboard. So your name is Dave Way. You are the curator of the Battleship Iowa, correct? Yes, that's correct. Now, how'd you get involved in this? Did you serve on the ship? Have you been here since the beginning? Um, what's going on? Well, I've had a, a lifelong passion of uh, warships and ocean liners, and in high school and college, I actually worked on the Queen Mary for 11 years. What? Yes, uh, I did a little bit of everything on board her, and during the many... Uh, my past years as a member of the uh, Navy League and the Naval Institute, I've uh, always been acquiring a lot of books. I've been on many uh, naval ship open houses, and I've been out at sea several times with the Navy, which uh, the Navy League members uh, used to be allowed to uh, go, uh, you know, uh, take an adventure with the Navy Day. But also, uh, 25 years ago, we made an attempt to save one of the other Iowa-class battleships. That was the New Jersey. And that didn't uh, end successfully, and I went on with my other career. Uh, but finally, about the time um, where I was going to retire, uh, this opportunity to save the Iowa and bring her to the Port of Los Angeles, San Pedro, uh, arrived. And so I took a little bit of a gamble about five years ago and uh, started working as the tour manager and was doing a lot of research. And one day they said, hey, I think we uh, found our curator, and it's you. So I've been... Uh, doing uh, you know that job the last four years uh, four and a half years and uh, it's been an adventure so what happened to the new jersey did it just get sent off to sea or do they sink it or what do they do well remarkably all four iowa class battleships that were constructed were saved and new jersey's in camden new jersey uh, missouri's uh, in honolulu next to the missouri and then the wisconsin is in uh, norfolk virginia and then we also saved four other battleships so that's actually eight, battlesh eight battleships out of uh, 49. There's uh, 49 battleships 
that were made in America over a 99-year period. And I would also like to mention, I'm very excited to tell you that that, that is the actual intercom of the Battleship Iowa. You're hearing real working sounds because we are broadcasting from the ship itself. Isn't that correct? Yes, there's always a lot of background sounds on any warship. No, normally the uh, ventilators are running. Uh, there's announcements taking place. You have the sound of the engines, of course, on. And uh, just people coming and going through the compartments, through the uh, doorways and hatches, definitely. Now, just to make sure, we are at peacetime, correct? Because it does sound like there's a war zone going on right now. <laughs> I just want to be correct. Sure. Yes, very we're definitely uh, political situation. I just want right. to make sure we're currently at peacetime. We're a decommissioned warship. That's okay. correct. Right. Uh, now, we're going to get to that in a second, but I want to tell you a little bit about my credentials, sir. Sure. Um, I visited the USS Constitution. Yes. Uh, so I know a little something about docked uh, Navy vessels. Um, now, that, however, was built about two centuries before the Battleship Iowa. So who do you think wins in a, in a battle there? <laughs> uh, definitely uh, their cannonballs would bounce off our armor. <laughs> so, yeah, unfortunately, uh, that was it. We, we, that would not be a contest. Short conversation. I get it. So let me ask you a very important question before we get into the meat of all this. Sure. Have you ever played Battleship on a battleship? Uh, <laughs> not since I've worked on board her, but uh, I did in my uh, you know childhood days. I played the Battleship game. Absolutely. Yes. So why do you... Now, are Battleships hard to sink? Because in that game, if you've seen any of the commercials, that is the coup de grace is to sink someone's battleship. Uh, what is the sinkability, if that's a term that I'm well, going to use here? It, sure. In real life, they are going to take the most punishment uh, of any warship before it'll go under. And if you look in World War II history, you can see uh, by reading stories of different warships that were sunk, how many bombs or torpedoes it took to really, uh, you know, finally get them to sink. And it's uh, easily a, a heavy amount of ordnance that has to hit the battleships. In the game, it's only four, so it's just four bombs. That's it. There you go. <laughs> so I assume they're a little tougher in real life. I'm just sure, jump sure. Go yeah. on a limb with that one. Now, right. you've mentioned Iowa-class battleships several times already. Right. What does that mean? Okay, so normally the Navy um, authorizes warships in numbers, and the Iowa-class, is the um, there was four of them. So your lead ship is what the class or those ships are called. So Iowa was the first ship of this type of uh, battleship. And then sometimes the uh, folks in the Navy use also the whole classification number. Ours is BB-61. So BB stands for battleship. And 61 is the 61st battleship authorized by Congress. So there's a number associated with it. And sometimes the Navy folks would just say, oh, the 61 class. So. It, it works along uh, those lines. So now is that a cumulative number? Like, I mean, are we in the 200s now, or how does that work? Uh, well, for battleships, uh, we stopped. Well, there was actually six Iowas authorized. Only four were completed. There was a Montana class that was uh, authorized, but construction was canceled. They never completed. So the BBs ended with, I believe, uh, 76 or 77. The other classes, for example, destroyers, which are normally the most plentiful um, class of warships, are in the um, oh, 1,000s, and uh, so they're way up there. So each class has, uh, you know, numbers that they're dealing with. 
So just because I love board games, I'm going to keep relating this back to Battleship. Ad okay. nauseum, say it till it's funny is my all is my all time favorite line. <laughs> all right. Destroyers in the game are also very easy to sink and very plentiful. So okay. If it had people at home, remember that. That's the two ship. Yes. Uh, so now, this particular ship has a rich history. Right. Um, Most definitely. Now, now, one other question. Now that I just thought of this, are there current battleships being created now? Different classes of battleship? Are we still no, doing so, this? No. So no battleships. The construction stopped um, at the beginning of World War II, and then they moved for the extreme striking force uh, with the aircraft carriers and air power and submarines also, and then later the missiles uh, came into play, and that's generally what we see today as the uh, striking force of the Navy. Missiles, aircraft, and uh, submarines. Although there are surface guns as well on some of the surface ships, but they're only five-inch guns. And, of course, Iowa has 16-inch guns, which are much, much uh, larger and powerful. Uh, now, let's get into the history of the Iowa itself. The, Great. Uh, this particular Iowa, because there were several Iowa-class battleships, as you, as you mentioned already. Sure. Uh, now, this one was called the Big Stick. Uh, that's very similar to my nickname in college. Okay. Now, this particular <laughs> this particular nickname refers to the Teddy Roosevelt about carrying a big stick. Right. That's, that's true. So that's then, you're saying a lot when you're coming at someone with that. Yeah, and speak softly. And yeah, just imagine having a battleship uh, parked off your coast uh, of a foreign nation, and what message uh, right. that sends. Right. The <laughs> right. visual impact of uh, seeing that out there is uh, you know something to think about. That is very true. Uh, why are all ships called she? That goes back to you know traditions many many hundreds of years ago, where um, the crews you know lived on board their ships, and so there was this you know fondness of that's their home, and there's just a lot of references to it being kind of your mother so to speak, where mm-hmm. you you know ate and were taken care of, and you were uh, your brothers were you know the crew that you served with as well. So we're kind of like in the womb of the ship right now. Oh sure, you you, you could say that as well. Yes. That's yeah. Normally, camaraderie ship on board a warship is huge. Uh, the people you serve with become uh, lifelong friends for sure. I would imagine it's pretty close quarters. Now, not as closed as a, as a submarine. Um, now, mm-hmm. I, I haven't I haven't served um, unfortunately, but I imagine you're saying camaraderie is at an all time high. Uh, yes. I feel like people get on each other's nerves because I came from a big family, and I got to tell you, I used to love getting on my brother's nerves. I'm sure, uh, you know, there are a few folks that uh, probably aren't your favorite, but I think the crew's always work through those uh, conditions. Anyone been thrown overboard that you know of or that you can tell me about? Uh, no, I've never heard a story along those lines. I'm sure uh, somebody was tempted to at one point <laughs> in time, but no, I've, I've, I'm not familiar with any story of right. that taking place. All right, fair enough. <laughs> uh, so now this ship was commissioned in 1943. So we're talking about this is the pinnacle of World War II. Sure. Um, this thing gets dropped into the water. Uh, right. What happens from that point? Well, her first assignment was to uh, go off the coast of Newfoundland, and they were going to have her in place to guard against the breakout of the Nazi Germany battleship Tirpitz, which was a sister ship to the Bismarck. And she had large 15-inch guns, great speed, great armor, and could have been a, a big threat to the convoys that were going to and from England, uh, resupply vessels. And if she came out, that, that would have been an um, effort or a reason to have Iowa deploy and go, go after her and sink her. But so that never did take place. That never took place. No. Then she came back after that assignment and was modified to uh, carry President Roosevelt and about 45 of his uh, War Cabinet staff 
to the Tehran and Cairo conference, somewhat as the Air Force One uh, jet today that we think of transporting the president and mm. some of his uh, members. And the ship was modified with the addition of a bathtub and then two elevators on the outside of the ship because uh, President Roosevelt had a polio condition and usually was in a wheelchair. So they journeyed over to the uh, North Africa where he went on to the uh, Tehran and Cairo conferences and then they picked him up and brought him home. Well, now, now let's let's talk about that trip because that is a, a very important and hilarious trip. And I bet you're going to say, why are you saying hilarious? Well, sure. there was a ship that, that um, we're going to take a step away from the Iowa for a second. We're shining the spotlight on another ship called the William D. Porter. That's right. Yes. Um, so there's some. This was an ill-fated ship. Uh, I fell down kind of a rabbit hole looking up this ship because uh, right. it was pretty bumbling as far as ships go. Yes. You want to yes. tell the stories or? Uh... Well, sure. Okay. Well, you know there was a lot of crews reporting to warships. Um, that a lot of the crews came from small towns, farms. This was a very new uh, world they were going into, working on a warship, learning uh, new equipment, and ships were coming out very fast that people had to man and, and, and uh, take off to sea. So there were destroyer escorts with Iowa uh, guarding the president. And one of these was the William D. Porter, uh, brand new crew. And they just seemed to have a lot of butt, bad luck uh, follow them. Uh, when they arrived at the escort point, well, from the beginning, I mean, their right. first their first story is them ripping a hole, just leaving yes. the dock for the first time, ripping a hole. Right. In the yeah. When they left port, uh, their anchor scraped uh, another ship next to them and tore off a bunch of the uh, fixtures on uh, the top of the uh, deck. That's how they started their career. Right. The voyage to um, <laughs> meet up at the uh, escort point. Then when they did arrive there, they let loose a depth charge that the primer had <laughs> been left on and. This is in U-boat infested waters, so there was a large explosion, and everybody thought they were under attack and you know, went into a, a war-setting type mode. <laughs> and they got everybody calmed down when they you know, radioed over or signal flashed over that, hey, that was our fault. Sorry, guys. Sure. Then they also last, lost, unfortunately, a man at sea when a big uh, wave came by and swept him off. Oh, wow. And by this time, uh, Admiral King that was on board the Iowa, it caught his attention. And he wasn't too thrilled with uh, what was taking place on the porter. So on one of the days, the captain of the porter was trying to make up and look you know, like they were knowing what they were doing, so to speak. They went alongside Iowa and did a simulated torpedo run. Unfortunately, once again, one of the uh, sailors left a primer in the firing mechanism and they shot a live torpedo at Iowa. <laughs> With the president on board. With I want to the make president sure on board. Everyone following along at home. Yeah, exactly. FDR's on board and exactly. hanging out in the bathtub. Sure. So history could have uh, changed, probably, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Anyhow, um, they initially signal lamped over because they wanted to keep radio silence, but they garbled the message. Finally, they panicked and um, radioed over to Iowa. By this time, she did see the torpedo heading her way. They increased speed. Uh, and turned, and the torpedo exploded in their wake. Then while this was taking place, President Roosevelt um, was on his veranda in his wheelchair reading a book, and he thought this was great entertainment, so he had the Secret Service people <laughs> roll him over to the edge of uh, next to the lifelines. On Iowa, they called general quarters. They were going to uh, train the guns on poor Porter. They thought maybe it was an assassination attempt. So anyhow, once again, they had to uh, tell everybody that, sorry, guys, that was our fault. Um, 
And Admiral King by this time was furious, so he ordered the destroyer back to a naval station at Bermuda. They kept the crew under arrest for three days, interviewed everybody, finally found the offending sailor. Initially, he was given uh, 14 years of hard labor, but uh, President uh, Roosevelt stood in and said, I think we've all suffered enough. Let's just go on with the war. So the uh, porter continued uh, first in the Alaskan waters, then down to the South Pacific. But the, um, what was taking place every time she'd come into an American anchorage, the rest of the warships would flash with their signal lamps, don't shoot, we're Republicans. <laughs> so she had, her reputation had you know, come out that the hard luck ship. Then, now, uh, well, I want to I want to go back really quickly because there's sure. one small detail that I thought was hilarious. Okay, so you bet. Th- this torpedo's loosed. It's it's going towards the the president of the United States. Right. They have their radio silence. U boats in the water. You don't want to give away what you're doing. Sure. Uh, so they have to signal to the ship that hey, you got to get out of the way. We just accidentally yes. shot a torpedo at you. Exactly. So they use signal flares. First of all, they tell it to go right, and actually they're supposed to tell them to go left. Then they tell them to back up accidentally. They don't even get the signals correct. And then finally, out of desperation, they have to break radio silence. Is right, that... right. Yeah, there was... Lots lot... of bumbling. Right, there was a little bit more to the uh, story. Um, the other thing that uh, took place was uh, the uh, Secret Service guards that were right next to the president, they pulled out their revolvers. They were going to try to shoot the torpedo. <laughs> so there was a lot of, uh, a lot of funny, quirky things uh, taking place. And then, sadly, um, Porter ended her days uh, being sunk. She was off the uh, coast of Okinawa with the radar picket uh, line of uh, warships that were warning uh, the approach of kamikazes to the rest of the invasion forces. And uh, she shot down a kamikaze that had dove on her. It crashed right next to her hull and exploded underneath the bottom of her hull, breaking her back. And she ended up sinking and there's some incredible photographs of her going down, but the crew did manage to uh, leave the ship, and in true naval fashion, the captain was the uh, last one off. Uh, so the porter had a real strange life, to say the least. Well, I will tell you that as many people as the porter almost killed. Uh, yes, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> the fact that everyone lived at the end is a kind of a miracle. Sure, uh, sure. A good way to end that story. Right. Um, now, let's talk about something else pretty amazing on the Iowa uh, which is my personal favorite um, mascot uh, ever to be on a ship, and that is Vicky. Yes, yeah. Actually, his name was Victory. Victory. Yeah, he was actually on the ship. It was the captain's dog, the first commanding officer's dog, and, and that's uh, John McRae, who later on became Admiral. And he was brought on the ship um, also, I think, to uh, be there to help uh, transport President Roosevelt. He used to be uh, President Roosevelt's naval attache, but um, Victory was his actual name. He was a male dog. He came on board, and he stayed with the president during the uh, cruise over to the Tron Conference as well. He had his own uniform. Uh, the Master at Arms uh, crew used to kind of look after him. And on his um, uniform jacket, he had a Master at Arms police-type badge, and it had number nine, of course, canine. Of course. And his uh, specialty... Uh, which is normally an emblem on your uh, rank uh, sleeve uh, that might show like electronics or gunnery or something like that. But mm-hmm. he had a fire plug. <laughs> we have That's all adorable. On, right. We have on board um, donated to us his uh, dog tags, 
his uh, health records. Oh, wow. His write-ups for going AWOL when he was in the <laughs> port of Long Beach and getting busted. Yeah, getting busted in rank. He was mascot first class, and he got busted in rank a few times for uh, fighting and causing a disturbance. <laughs> but he was considered the most uh, traveled dog in the American Navy and also the first uh, American canine and occupied Japan at the end of the war. Wow. So he was a very illustrious uh, dog, and we have some wonderful photographs. Um, and mascots on warships at that point in time were very common. Um, the California had a, a little bear cub at one point in time, and there were other dogs and kittens and you know reptiles or whatever the ship uh, chose for their mascot. So that was common in that era. Now, is that common, like, can you bring your dog on with you now onto a battleship? Or? Uh, no, 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 that's, uh, that, maybe it takes place periodically, but not for not as much. long deployments and things of that nature. So tell me about him going AWOL. What happened there? Uh, he was in the port of Long Beach and went wandering off. And we think perhaps there's some relatives of uh, Vicky somewhere in the Long Beach area. We're not quite sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, yes. But uh, there was actually uh, memos that went out to the uh, flagships to be on the lookout for the dog. And uh, they ended up finding him and uh, bringing him back on board. But he knew about the um, uh, bugle calls uh, on board Iowa. That's what they used instead of Bosom's pipe whistles in those days. So he knew the uh, air raid signal, and he would run down to his bunk and hide because he didn't like the uh, guns firing. But today we've kind of continued the saga of uh, Vicky the dog, and we've incorporated it as a child's game uh, along the tour route here. Um, we hand the kids a card, and there's a location next to it. And then we have 10 numbered uh, Vicky signs, and they're supposed to match the number to that location that they think it is. And then at the end of the tour route, they're given a sticker and a Vicky uh, dog tag. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, and it's actually very popular. Um, and then the kids keep occupied when maybe they're not interested in the history of a warship and uh, don't realize what they're uh, walking through and observing uh, where their parents might have a little bit more free time. Sure. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Vicky's uh, uh, continues his stories, which is uh, really fun for us. I wonder if he liked being called Vicky. I guess so. Um, I mean, you know, whatever. Right. I just you know, yes, imagine. Yes, yes, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Still yeah, I, I that. Right, right. No, I've had to correct people every once in a while. Actually, he was uh, a male, and his real name was Victory, so I have to remind uh, our uh, tour staff that periodically. No, that's, that's <laughs> fair enough. Right, right. Um, now, let's talk about the Iowa's military capabilities. People are tuning in because they want to see brute force. What was this thing capable of from a military standpoint? Oh, sure. Well, first of all... In um, 1943, let's start there. Okay, yeah, you bet. Great. So she and her other three sister ships carry the um, largest uh, guns ever placed on American warship. They're called 16-inch 50 caliber guns. The only thing that was uh, larger were the two Japanese super ship, ships, the uh, Yamato and Mashashi. They had 18-inch guns. And actually, America did develop an 18-inch gun, but the point in time um, they reached when they were designing the ship to make a choice between the 18-inch and the 16-inch gun system, they chose the 16-inch as a new projectile had come out that was extremely powerful and they had great results. So there was a lot of uh, weight saved by going to the 16-inch system. And then for what's called the secondary battery, there was 10 twin 5-inch 38 gun mounts 
And those are dual purpose, both anti-surface and anti-air. And that particular gun mount was on almost every warship uh, in World War II. And then they added a massive anti-aircraft battery. There was 19 quad 40 millimeter guns and another 52 20 millimeter guns. Uh, it was huge. And float planes back aft, they used to launch uh, with uh, catapults. So she was a, a very uh, powerful uh, weapon. And with her great speed, she could do up to 32 knots. She would normally uh, escort the fast attacking aircraft carriers, providing uh, protection with her um, anti-aircraft battery. And also in case of a ship breaking through uh, to attack the aircraft carriers, she had her large guns to handle any kind of threat of that nature. So she was pretty maneuverable for uh, a ship of her size. Yes, actually, and it was really surprising to a lot of people. One of her nicknames was the Super Destroyer because at there speed, you go. that's yeah, a nickname, right? At speed, she uh, would um, actually outturn a destroyer, and that used to shock a lot of escorting uh, destroyer captains. So <laughs> she has a real long hull uh, lines, and that helped greatly uh, with her speed. So she was commissioned for World War II. Yes. And then was decommissioned in 1949. That's correct. But then right. very quickly brought back into service. Right. It was um, for the Korean War, of course. Uh, two years and four months later, she was uh, back in service after being be uh, decommissioned. And, you know, the Korean War was really just tailor-made for naval gunfire support. The battleships and cruisers and destroyers could go along the lines, the coastline of uh, North Korea and firing their uh, guns to protect the United Nations troops. And they also took out ammunition targets, um, train lines, um, train marshalling lines, and then these massed uh, human wave attacks of the Chinese and uh, North Korean troops. So Iowa in uh, the Korean War ended up firing twice as many, both 16 inch and five inch rounds than she did in World War II. Hmm. and won another two battle stars. And she spent seven months on the gun line, uh, almost firing 24 hours a day. Uh, for seven was, months? Yes, yes. Occasionally going in for supplies, but she was on what they called the gun line uh, quite a few days. Uh, very, very interesting. I actually uh, acquired the Korean War diaries, and I had to write a uh, Freedom of Information Act letter because nobody had ever asked for them before. So I have their uh, wartime uh, diaries that are very, very interesting and fun to read. Now, w when you say that this thing was shooting for seven months straight, uh, I've seen a lot of action movies and people, you know, they'll shoot a, you know, 15 rounds out of a, out of a revolver, you know, like, how does that work? When do they run out of bullets on a, on a ship like that? Sure. Well, she can carry um, 1,220 16-inch projectiles, but you would go um, back uh, to um, a re, um, you know, ammunition uh, site where you could reload periodically. So either ships could come to you or you could go back into a port to um, bring ammunition back on board. So it's pretty easy? Uh, sure. Well, it's a lot of work. You know, you have to put the shells below deck in their magazine areas or protected areas. So it's a big effort for the crew to bring the big shells on board and the many um, other uh, five inch rounds, <clears throat> the powder that, you know, shoots them as well as, uh, if you're reloading for the 40 millimeter guns that were still on board during the Korean war as well. 
Now, now we've already talked a couple of times about commissioning, decommissioning, recommissioning. Sure. What does that exactly mean? Because it was decommissioned in 49 and then recommissioned in 51. Why not just keep it around? Sure. Um, well, first, although battleships bring an enormous amount of capabilities, um, they also are very expensive to operate. Hey, hold not... on. Are we under attack right now? <laughs> okay. Oh, I think someone's, someone's tea's ready. Right. Well, you're, you're not too uh, far from the uh, truth. This would be a, a bosun's pipes whistle, and it's making an announcement. Here we go. Right, so that would be something that would take place on a daily basis on a warship. Uh, they always uh, keep Swab American. the deck is basically yes. what I heard. There you go, basically. Yeah, but American warships are kept very clean. Um, I can see that. Sure. Uh, anyway, back to recommissioning, decommissioning. Right. So how right. does this work? What's the advantage again? Sure, sure. So you know, once a warship does uh, you know, go out of service, it's taken out of service, um, there's a whole process if you want to save her for future service or for, uh, future needs to um, drain all the uh, fuel oils. You go uh, into a dry dock and you have what's called sea chests that are sealed. And this is a uh, water coolant uh, inlets. And uh, also the upper decks are sealed and they run dehumidifiers. And you just kind of lock down the ship and put her in an anchorage and protector also with an electrolysis field around the hull at times. So you just try to preserve her as long as you want until the day uh, comes where you deem that she would never be back in service. Hey, what's an electrolysis field? It's a, a, a low-level um, electrical field that prevents the uh, ocean water interacting with the metal hull so you won't be rusting or corroding. Oh, wow. That is such a great idea. Right. And some there's external ones you can create. Some of them are embedded inside a hole as well. So it's just a constant. So is it like um, like the kind of pulse you'd feel on like an electrified fence? I guess you shouldn't probably go on board. <laughs> right. My guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nothing extreme, but it's just enough to give you that protection. Um, we actually are running one now today. <clears throat> Wait, for, right now? Yes. Now you choose yeah. now to tell me that? Right. Right. <laughs> well, I thought you were glowing over <laughs> there a little bit. <laughs> oh. Really weird. <laughs> right. Uh, exactly. So so you shut them down basically to save money then. Do you pull people off of it? And sure. Being, is that the basic reason why you decommission? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's usually a budgetary. And normally um, a warship's life is usually going to be about 30 years. And then the whole life, you know, you've worn out the whole, the technology has increased. Now, aircraft carriers are pretty unique. They easily uh, run those for 50 to 60 years, but they have a lot of modernization and refurbishment efforts that um, take place periodically. Sure. Uh, but there's a lot invested in the construction of those to begin with. Uh, but the right. smaller ships, usually they're 20, sometimes 30, 40 years. Uh, however, we do send those ships to uh, foreign navies that sometimes run them another 20 or 30 years as well. Um, but at least not in the American Navy. Sure. The old uh, Craigslist slash eBay market internationally. There you go. There um, you go. So now you said it only lasts 30 years. This is a great segue into something that does make Iowa very unique and yes. that it came back into service 40 years after it was decommissioned. Right. Um, in 1984, when Reagan wanted to have the 600 vessel Navy. Uh, so that would require lots of modernization, 40 years worth. Well, the, the you know, it's, Unless you understand battleships, the you know the warfare had evolved with missiles, 
And Iowa is designed to take a hit from a 16-inch projectile. And the missiles today, depending on what point or what part of Iowa you would hit, would do absolutely no harm. We have, in certain areas, uh, 17 inches of armor, 12 inches of armor, uh, 6 inches of armor, whatever it might be in different areas. And the missiles are just not designed to penetrate, you know, those areas. So Iowa, you know, when she came out in the 80s, still had her great speed. The huge 16-inch guns, those were the largest afloat uh, in the world, uh, several 5-inch guns. And then what they did was they added 32 uh, Tomahawk missiles and then 16 Harpoon anti-ship missiles. And then they upgraded her electronic warfare capability, also her uh, just, you know, communications, which you always do, uh, radar sensors, plus four phalanx Gatling guns that were for uh, the defense against cruise missiles and some other um, cruise missile defenses. So she emerged as a very, very powerful warship. And the price for that refurbishment, which was around $385 million, was equal to what was being constructed then as a far less capable Perry-class frigate. Mm. So you actually got a lot of bang for your buck. However, once again, she is very expensive to operate with a large crew and uh, fuel consumption. Mm. So, you know, it's something that uh, certainly gave the uh, Soviet Union uh, Navy at that point in time something to think about. And it was a great ship to send around the world and show the flag and America's might. Sure, the big stick. Exactly, Um, exactly. So one other thing, this particular, during that refit, uh, yes, there were drones that were actually the Pioneer, the uh, AAI RQ2 Pioneer drone was added. That's uh, right. First thing yes. in the Navy. Right, right. I um, didn't know that was going on. Yes, yes. And we're actually trying to um, beef up our aviation story on Iowa Stern. In World War II, as I mentioned earlier, they started out with the float planes, which were with the American Navy until 1949. Then in the Korean War, uh, the catapults were removed and they had the helicopters on board back aft that were uh, just kind of coming into the military. But later on in the 80s, um, they had all the helicopters that were operating in the Navy landing on uh, Iowa Stern. And then they brought out one of the early, they called it then a remote piloted vehicle today. We just usually say drone. But it was a little uh, rocket-assisted drone that would take off, and it could uh, be used for reconnaissance. And they also had a, a laser designator to uh, designate targets for another airplane, perhaps, to attack that target. And Iowa was the lead program ship um, for that uh, effort for developing how to operate with those. We we're trying to find one. We'd love to uh, show that on the stern. Uh, but they were used by the Marines uh, next. And we think the Forestry Department for spotting forest fires and we're still trying to track down, uh, try to find one somewhere to put on the stern. Oh, that'd be incredible. Sure. We have, though, uh, purchased a, it's called a Piseki Hup helicopter. Mm-hmm. And we are in the middle of refurbishing it locally. And it'll go on display at the side of Turret 3. And she's from the Korean War era. She's one of the first tandem uh, rotor helicopters. And quite small by today's standards, but we're really looking forward to showing that uh, off. I think she'll be here by this spring or summer, so we're very excited uh, about that. And we also have a simulated uh, uh, helicopter um, station that we're going to develop as well. 
So we're still part of the modern world and uh, can share that as well with our visiting public. Now, when you say helicopter, we were talking about drones. You're talking about manned helicopters, so just a tandem yes, two-person helicopter. Right. This was a small uh, rescue helicopter. Mm. Um, she, you know, she could go behind enemy lines and pick up downed pilots uh, when the ship was off the coast. They would transport a lot of VIPs. And then also uh, they would do uh, helicopter guard duty in case a pilot had to ditch on takeoff or landing. They, uh, they could hopefully pluck that poor pilot out of the water with a, a hoist and uh, bring him back to either the, a carrier or the battleship Iowa, whichever was closest, of course. Yeah. So. Um, well, that's, you know, that's pretty incredible. Um, and we're talking about, you know, these are all things that were th- throughout its history. Um, one other interesting piece is that, you know, in 2015, I'm talking about as of this recording, um, Trump is our president. Sure. While he was campaigning, he came to the battleship Iowa. Yes. And there's even talk about recommissioning the battleships once again. Right. Let's say that were to happen in 2017. Um, do you, what would the advancements look like? It's like another 40 years since they were last recommissioned. You know, there was... Um it was called Phase 2, and if the Iowa-class battleships had remained in service longer, they were going to install, well, first of all, remove uh, Turret 3 and build a uh, kind of a flight deck back aft of the for the Harrier jump jets. And then in the center, where Turret 3 was, they were going to add what's called a vertical launch system to put more uh, cruise missiles on board. So that was one uh, option that was explored many years ago. Um, and, of course, they can always augment her with uh, more modern missile systems, communication gear, and, and things of that nature. So now when, when, the two, when the 83 retrofit happened, they took off the anti-aircraft guns because they, were, you know, they weren't really relevant anymore. They were outdated. Yeah, exactly. So what happens to those? Do they end up in someone's backyard to like, hey, look what I got? Or like, does it end up on that eBay, Craigslist, black market internationally? What happens to those things? Right, right. I think, unfortunately, some of them were scrapped. Um, we're actually trying to locate a 40 millimeter quad is what they on board the American battleships, uh, not just a twin. Uh, we've been trying to locate one to put it on display. And even the uh, single 20 millimeter guns are pretty rare. Now in the Korean war, uh, Iowa's were only carrying the quad 40 millimeter gun guns. The 20 millimeter guns had already been taken off. Mm-hmm. So there was just a handful of 40 millimeters um, left on board the Iowas when they came out in the 80s that were then they were taken off because as you said they were definitely obsolete uh, at that point in time right now what's kind of interesting about this whole idea of recommissioning them is that you know in this current age that we have here uh, all the digital equipment we have is so susceptible to hacking in all shapes and sizes and forms that this battleship is actually the pinnacle the ultimate in analog technology uh, there's this great television series called Battlestar Galactic. Are you familiar with it? Oh, sure. Yes. Uh-huh. So what's great about that is the battleship Galactica that they're on is actually a quasi-obsolete, uh, was going to be a museum before mm-hmm. they were attacked and had to leave. Uh, this is very similar to that. It's a very powerful ship still. Um, do you think there's any value to that in this day and age? Well, you know, on board are still the analog uh, computers and the battery plot rooms, and they were so well constructed that they continued to use them in the uh, 80s during the uh, third commissioning period um, during uh, Desert Storm as well. So um, there's an argument that, you know, if you had the electric magnetic pulse, perhaps, that 
you know, ship like this, a good old redundant uh, gunpowder firing uh, weapon system, mm-hmm. you know, would still be in service, whereas maybe your other missiles and things of that nature uh, could not be uh, deployed, could not be used. So that certainly is uh, one argument that has been brought up. I think it's a great argument. And the battleship Galactica, much like the battleship Iowa, could be brought into service to save humanity. I mean, the zombie apocalypse pop on the Iowa, you know, sure possibilities. Yeah. yeah. You disagree? Right, right. Um, yeah, that is possible. Um, and this question uh, comes up or this conversation on this topic quite frequently. Um, you guys talk about the zombie apocalypse? Oh. <laughs> I love that. Tell no. me about it. What have you guys, what scenarios have you run? <laughs> right. Uh what part of the deck to uh, lock ourselves into? Yes. Are we in the <laughs> Pro- safest spot? Probably the uh, armored conning tower, which is uh, 17 inches thick. Oh, wow. Right. Now, um, you know, we the whole life, there's definitely a lot left on board the Iowa-class battleships. However, um, you know, if the ship was ever, I, we just don't see uh, her ever going back into the service. She is now um, about 75 years old. Um We'll celebrate her um, first commissioning uh, next year in 2018. That'll be her 75th anniversary. Oh, wow. Also, it's not very automated. Uh, parts, you know, are difficult, even though, you know, if you want to spend the money, nothing is impossible. But the other factor that comes into play besides, besides the large fuel use is the number of crew it takes to uh, man the ship. And in World War II, it started out at 2,800. The Korean War was 2,500. And then in the 80s, was 1,500. Hmm. And just to give you a comparison, um, the backbone of the fleet today is the Burke-class destroyers. And their crew size is about 300 to 320. And so what the Navy today is always trying to do is automate their ships as much as possible because 50 to 60% of the operational expense of a warship now is uh, salaries and benefits. Hmm. So... There could be some modernization possibilities on an Iowa, um, but, you know, it's just getting uh, a bit difficult to imagine that they would be placed back into service. Now, that is true. However, okay, correct me if I'm wrong, sir. Yes, all right. But there is the 2006 Defense Authorization Act actually requires that ships like the Iowa remain in uh, are maintained in a way that they could be recommissioned if sure. needed. Sure, right. Yes, and what that means to us is, for example... Um, Don't get too comfy here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But also, you know, we're not going to be uh, blowtorching into any um, armored sections of the ship uh, <laughs> oh, for right. the tour route, things like that. So, yes, we're aware of um, of that condition. Wait, so would you do that? Like, if you just wanted to make it easier to walk around, just blowtorch through a wall? Some of the other uh, warships have. I believe the Alabama uh, has cut out a portion of one of her... Um, Barbettes, so you can walk through the uh, projectile flats and um, the you know the inner mechanisms of their 16-inch guns. Hmm. Right. So and it's a lot easier to get your visitors down uh, through those areas. Otherwise, it's extremely difficult uh, to go down some of those ladders and into hatches and things like that around the gun systems. Well, now, speaking of that, I'm going to just quickly pop in here with a question. Uh, I'm a landlubber. You won't see me on a ship, probably. Not that I get seasick, but I'm just not a fan of being at sea for long periods of time. Right. So why, I got to ask this, this is why I don't know the answer to this question, but all the doors here. Yes. uh, They're circles. 
with large metal things at the bottom that you have to step over every single doorway. Sure. Uh, how many shins have been shattered uh, during the long history of the Battleship Iowa? Right, right. Quite a few. And since you brought up that topic, the um, oh, the corpsmen, the medical folks on board uh, these ships. Oh, they do it. I got it. Right. It's so, so most of their time, they said, was spent uh, stitching up uh, the sailors that were running around and would bash into... Uh, different parts of the ship and the passageways and uh, there's a lot of things that are sticking out you know protruding here and there so we're usually black and blue by the end of the week as well can only imagine right yeah it's a uh, daunting uh, area to walk around <laughs> so what is it for so is it to keep water so you can like lock them and make them watertight is it to protect from the water it has to be a functional purpose sure besides well, keeping the medical staff employed there's your uh, structural considerations where you have like an oval hatch so you know, you don't want a square one because um, then you have cracks that could develop in the corners. So that's a structural um, mm. dealing. And then for water, if you did have a leak, uh, it could allow, hopefully, that area, that compartment to be isolated and water wouldn't go over to the other uh, compartment uh, before you could close the door or start, you know, pumping out of some sorts. So it's functional engineering, not yes. an architectural oversight. Right. Yeah. In general, you know, warships are all about function uh, compared to an ocean liner, which is all about, you know, comfort. So there's no comfort normally, uh, or very little comfort, I should say, on a warship. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, so now let's go. We're going to move the history to the 80s. Um, sure. So Reagan was on board in yes. uh, the 4th of July in 86 for That's a naval right. review. Is that correct? Yes. They were the lead review ship. It was the 100th anniversary of the Statue of Liberty, and they were uh, celebrating her refurbishment in that day. And so Iowa um, had a uh, special review platform built on top of Turret 1, and the president landed in his helicopter on the stern, and he and a few other uh, VIPs uh, reviewed the um, assembled ships in uh, New York Harbor. And there was a lot of events that took place that uh, Fleet Week uh, type of a atmosphere or occasion can only imagine the festivities during fleet week uh, now this now this particular ship is also known as the president's ship uh lots of presidents came on board here not just fdr reagan um george h dub bush right uh and uh well not president trump but campaigning trump what else yes. we got well we had uh, as you mentioned uh george bush he actually was a vice president then uh, of course later president and he was giving a speech in 1984 upon the ship's uh, third commissioning uh, and during the third commissioning ceremonies. So we have those uh, four folks uh, that we're aware of. That's great. That's a good number. Those are some pretty solid presidents. Sure, sure. On, I believe the date was uh, January 20th, uh, the Iowa set a record for launching a 16-inch shell about 27 miles. Right. Does that record still stand? Yes, yes. For a large caliber gun, it does. It was a peacetime gunnery exercise, um, and they were trying to get the best performance they possibly could out of the shell, um, and it hit the target, too. <laughs> so Really? Oh, yes. that's, that's actually really incredible. Right, at right. that kind of distance. Normally, for the 16-inch guns, you wouldn't want to go much beyond 20, uh, 24 miles with the radar assist guidance. So usually up to 20 miles is, is where you're uh, going to be um, extreme range shooting towards. 
That's, I mean, it's actually unfathomable to think you can be accurate at 20, almost 30 miles away. Yeah. All right, so let, let's talk about the ship. Can we get into some of, the, what are your favorite places that are off limits to the public? Sure. Oh, well, definitely. There's an area on third deck. It's called Broadway, and it's actually a tunnel. It's uh, 464 feet long, and it extends over the four boiler rooms, four engine rooms, uh, the battery plot rooms. There's one fore and there's one aft. And then the uh, transmitter room is down there as well. And it's just a very, very unique area. You have uh, hatches uh, off both sides, port and starboard, that lead down to the two or four boiler rooms, four engine rooms. And that's just a very interesting spot. Now, when I'm walking around this place, it seems like there's hatches to wherever, there's doorways, there's... How did everyone keep track of where everything went? Um, well, you, you have to, you know, it takes a while to learn your ship. Um, a lot of the crew members would tell us that when they, when they come on a tour today that they saw parts of the ship they'd never seen before because when they served on the ship, they would go to their uh, workstation, their combat station during general quarters, the galley for meals, and then back to their uh, berthing, their, uh, their sleeping area. And that was the only part of the ship they would go to because, um, you know, somewhat frowned upon sometimes to go to other uh, areas throughout the ship. It, see, it sounds weird to hear that, but I work at a, a place with a large, you know, campus, and there are parts of the campus I've never I've worked there ten years. I've never there's parts of it I haven't seen, sure, uh, or that most people haven't seen. So I guess that does make sense. But your initial reaction is, why wouldn't you go and explore the ship? I mean, this place has got all these little nooks and crannies everywhere. Sure, yeah, some areas would be locked down too because they were a security, uh, secure area for classified activities that might be taking place, and then. If you were an enlisted crew member, you weren't supposed to go in officer's country, as they would say. And then also, as an enlisted crew, uh, if you wander into somebody, somebody else's birthing area, uh, they might be asking you, what are you doing here, type routine, unless you're seeing a friend or something like that. What's a birthing so, area? I assume it's not where the women that, were. No, no, that's just the traditional Navy term for uh, where you would sleep. The uh, birthing area? Yeah. Where did that well, come from? Uh, ships used to be birthed. Um, I guess uh, the ship's your baby, and she's she's in birth. <laughs> Fair enough. I'd have to look that one up. Actually, no, I'm not quite sure. So, what are the re are there any resources on board? Should you get lost while uh, wandering around? Well, yeah, there. Um, Obviously, not now. There's very you know specific tour routes. Right. But. There's a um, there's probably one in this compartment. It's a yellow painted rectangle. It's called a bullseye, and it has your location uh, code, like what deck you're on. They actually call out a frame number, like an, a sailing ship, and then also the compartment you're in. Um, so you at least know in that aspect, you know, what deck you're on, uh, what part of the ship uh, you're on lengthwise. So hopefully you can figure out your way back to uh, wherever you need to be. It's like a, like a complex parking structure. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. You could say that as well. Yeah. Ships are easily laid out about the same. So once you get used to... Um, one of them you can generally you know make uh from point a to point b where you want to go roughly like a right right yeah exactly uh now what about like some obscure places on the ship are there any fun mysterious places any cool obscure history uh that people would find interesting about the iowa um well one area that we're refurbishing now that i think well i will enjoy opening up to the public it's called the combat engagement center and it's kind of what I call the Star Trek room on the bridge, 
where you have all the um, sensors and um, consoles, weapon consoles, uh, navigation uh, readouts, radar readouts. And there's a, a tactical action officer, kind of like your Captain Kirk sitting in the middle of it wow. uh, with all this information feeding into you. And that was created during the uh, Cold War era for all the new systems that came on board the ship. Uh, before that, it was actually just a flag room, uh, conference room, uh, the flag group that was on uh, board the ship that had a flag admiral uh, normally uh, attached to Iowa. I think the combat engagement room is a much better use of that area. Yeah, it's, it's very, very cool. Um, when we acquired the ship, though, many of the consoles had been removed, and so we've been slowly piecing it back together uh, with the help and assistance of some real uh, great volunteers. Um, and occasionally they'll find some equipment that has been discarded uh, that's no longer really you know, frontline uh, service modern equipment. And we'll be able to put it back into our uh, combat engagement center and uh, make it totally authentic. So that's what we're working on now. So you're going to bring it up to 80, 1983 standards? Yes, yes. It'll be the equipment that was on board uh, during the 80s. And it took a little research effort to uh, determine, you know, what went where, <laughs> right. so to speak. But um, we have, like, Tomahawk and Harpoon missile consoles. Uh, not totally complete. Um, then also uh, radar repeaters, um, some of the electronic warfare gear. With A lot of the guts are out, of course. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the, you know, front instrument panels are there and you can light them up and it'll be really fun. So it sounds incredible. I mean, yeah. this place is kind of like today in 2017, it's really a museum built on top of a museum because you've got both, you know, 1940s world war two technology, which is still in existence. I think I'm plugged into it right now. Right. And, or at least we're listening to it. occasionally. Yes, exactly. Uh, and you also have 1983 technology, which is kind of overlaying on that. So it's like you're getting bang, two bang, you know, bang for your buck. You two museums in one. Right. Right. And actually, that's a challenge for us, too, where the other uh, battleship museums on the East Coast are uh, only uh, dealing with telling the World War II story that they were part of. We have three periods, you know, mm -hmm. the uh, World War II, Korean War, and Cold War. Uh, and so Iowa is a mixture of all those uh, three commissioning periods. So sometimes you're in a compartment and it's uh, it contains uh, World War II furniture and then you'll be in another compartment, and it's uh, 80s configuration. So, yeah, it's a, it's a real mixed bag. It's really interesting. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, with any luck, there will be a 2017 refit, and we'll see this <laughs> ship back on the, on the ocean. But until then, uh, that makes it extremely unique. Right. Um, you've got to come check this thing out. You guys have tours uh, every yes. day, right? Yeah, it's seven days a week, um, 10 to 4. And the normal tour uh, lasts about an hour and a half to two hours. And we have a wonderful website. You can gather more information, an app you can download. Um, and we have special events periodically. Uh, the next real large fun one will be Fleet Week. The second annual Fleet Week will be over Labor Day weekend. And the Active Navy uh, will come up. And you can uh, go on board a uh, tour uh, for free, but you just need to pull like a reservation time slot. And we'll have things out in our uh, parking lot area, uh, exhibits, uh, probably helicopters and different uh, military units and things of that nature. And then, of course, Iowa will be open as well. So that's a real fun week, and we get to interface with the uh, active Navy. And then for President's Day coming up, we have a new uh, virtual reality um, app or uh, station 
with uh, President Roosevelt coming out uh, live and talking about his trip in Iowa. And that's in the captain's import cabin where uh, President Roosevelt stayed uh, when he was on board the ship. So you're gonna have a VR experience? Yes, yes. Oh, that's incredible. So now what, what is the website? You're, you're so coy with it. Let's give it to people so they can find um, you guys. I believe it's uh, pacificbattleship.com. Okay, pacificbattleship.com. And I'll have sure. links to all this stuff on the website. Okay, so thank you. So people can find it. Uh, you guys yeah. on Facebook, Twitter, are you doing all that stuff? Yes, yeah, we're very um, up to speed, up to date, uh, very active uh, uh, modern technology type uh, staff. So. so you're already ready for that 2017 refit. There you go. There you go. Um, yeah, there's just one problem, you know. I mean, this is my job now, so... Uh, does that mean I have to go out to sea with the regular Navy? Or, I think so. Uh, uh-oh. Do you want to stay with them? How, how do I explain this to my uh, <laughs> my dog? Bring him <laughs> with. We yeah, victory. There, there we go. We can New put mascot. the dog on the ship. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes good sense. I wouldn't dare have it any other way. <laughs> okay. Um, Dave, I want to thank you so much for taking time out uh, to Great. tell me a little bit more about the Iowa. Oh, and, sure. Um, yeah, I really hope everyone comes out. You've got If you're in the Los Angeles area... Uh, San Pedro's not that far. You've got to come check this out. It's a very incredible, unique experience. Well, thanks for uh, joining us today. We always you know, appreciate the exposure, and we really, truly love um, sharing the ship and her story uh, with the visiting public. Well, great. Thank you again, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every past episode. It's all archived on the page. Uh, While you're there, follow on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the webpage. And I gotta tell you, this particular episode is jam-packed with great pictures on Pinterest and videos on YouTube. Uh, I found lots of historical pictures and and all kinds of, you know, from from every single era. And plus, we got a lot of behind-the-scenes access. So we're talking about rooms that are kind of being renovated and refurbished now that are going to be on the tour later on, including the combat engagement room where all the, the intelligence decisions were made, the deciphering room, the brig, the barbershop, uh, all this stuff on YouTube. You, you got to check it out. You can also, if you want to learn about future episodes, which I highly recommend, you can subscribe to my extremely well-written newsletter, which will tell you about upcoming guests and other projects that I'm doing. You can do that on fascinatingnouns.com as well at the bottom. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play so you'll never miss an episode. Please check out all my projects on danieljglenn.com if you are interested. And always, thank you for listening. And of transmission.